I'm walking down the path in my garden and I have a suggestion for you on how you could help with global warming. With a large lawn, I found a simple way of making a big difference. I sold my ride-on mower and bought a top-of-the-range Cress robotic lawnmower. It runs off rechargeable batteries and uses cutting-edge technology to mow and maintain a lawn this size. The petrol mower has gone, and with it, the emissions. I actually don't know why I didn't sell the ride-on sooner. With the Cress robotic lawnmower, the lawn is actually looking better. The tiny grass cuttings fall into the grass roots, helping to fertilize the grass. And the family doesn't have to put up with the noise and fumes from the ride-on. And I've freed up more of my time to spend with them and in the garden. It's an easy step. And you could also be making that change today. Ask for Cress in your local garden machinery dealer. Or visit cress.com. Hello and welcome back to the RHS Gardening Podcast. Each fortnight we bring you a mixture of features and discussions exploring every aspect of gardening, plant care, pest control, growing your own fruit and vegetables and expert seasonal advice on what you should be doing in your garden right now. I'm Tony Dickerson, one of the advisory team at RHS Garden Wisley in Surrey. We answer members' gardening questions via phone, email and in person at RHS Shows and Gardens. On this edition of the podcast, we're at the 2013 RHS Hampton Court Palace Flower Show. Coming up, practical seasonal advice including pond maintenance, growing beans and promoting better blooms on your irises. A special focus on the new escape zone at the RHS Hampton Court Palace Flower Show, including roses, butterflies and delicious grow-your-own recipes. Our team of horticultural advisors are on hand to answer your latest gardening questions. And, as always, we'll have the latest news on RHS events and summer activities. But first, let's get some seasonal practical advice on what to do in your gardens now from the experts at the Hampton Court Palace Flower Show. I'm Sarah Cook from the National Collection of Sir Cedric Morris Arises. And Sir Cedric Morris was a really famous British artist of the 1920s to 60s and was an iris breeder as well. So I've had to learn how to grow irises very well to look after his heritage. Now is the absolutely perfect time of year to give irises the conditions they need for next year and the treatment they want. What you need to do is to cut the leaves down a bit to let a bit more light in and then give them a really good feed of, say, a rose fertiliser, high potash, which really keeps them going. If they're a very congested group, they have the same problem, no sun on the rhizomes, and they all get smaller and smaller, not enough feed, in which case you must lift and divide them. And July, August to September are the ideal times to be doing that. Lift them up with a fork cut the leaves down, cut the roots to two inches about, throw away the um, unuseful rhizomes, the small rhizomes, keep the bigger rhizomes and uh, replant them with the rhizomes just at ground level. Water them in if it's very dry, give them one more water maybe three or four weeks later if it's still in this sort of weather, really hot and dry, and then they should grow very well. If you divide them, they may take a year to get re-established and flower again. What they need is space and food, a bit like me, in fact. I think the best all-time iris bred in Britain was one called White City, bred by a woman called Olive Murrell. And my favourite iris is one that Sir Cedric Morris named for Olive Murrell called Benton Olive. My name is Francis Saunders and I'm from Ecopond. At this time of year, it's important to maintain the water level in your pond... And if you can, top it up with 
rainwater rather than tap water. If you don't have access to rainwater, ensure that when using tap water, you use a good dechlorinator to remove the chlorine from the water. It's important to top it up in, in order to make sure that the level of water is appropriate, A, to the level of plants in your pond, but also to reduce the amount of heating of the pond, which increases as the water level falls. At this time, it's likely you're going to have quite a lot of algae growth in your pond, so if possible, remove blanket weed, or if necessary, treat to control green water algae, which otherwise are going to cause problems later in the year. Ideally, you can treat it naturally with something like barley straw, but this is quite slow to react, so the alternative is to use something like extract of barley straw, which will become operational straight away. One of the easy ways to assist in removing blanket weed from your pond is simply to take something like a bamboo cane and twist it in the water, and you will find that you can wrap quite a lot of the blanket weed around it and then just pull it out without too much difficulty. I'm David Turner, product manager for Fothergill Seeds. It's a surprising amount of veg that you can still sow um, from July and onwards, but uh, starting you've got beetroots, there's dwarf beans, you can do some of the cabbages of a second sowing, which will still give you time to get some crops for the spring. Uh, carrots, spring onions, some of the broccoli. I mean, there, there's quite a large amount that you wouldn't expect you could still sow but you can to get spring and even autumn crops out of i think the biggest problem at the moment uh, and i've heard it several times since i've been at the show is a lot of people who've sown carrots and have lost them and there's a lot of rodent damage and unfortunately mice get in they find the nice succulent roots and they'll work their way along a line and you'll see huge patches where there's nothing growing the easiest thing, I think, to get around that is raised beds, even carrots and such vegetables in troughs or containers, because they do actually make quite an attractive adornment to a patio as well. Climbing beans, runner beans, dwarf beans can also be sown. Uh, they will need a lot of water, in particular in the weather we're having at the moment, to get them going, get them established, and constantly, once, particularly once they're growing well, will need to be watered once, even twice a day. Early in the morning late at night or late in the evening to stop the the burn on the leaf or anything like that and that's the best way to keep them growing and growing well it's also a good idea with runners make sure you crop them regularly the more you crop the longer the season will be and the better and more fruit you'll get to get off the plants you can find more tips and advice on growing your own fruits and vegetables on the rhs website rhs.org.uk forward slash grow your own Here you can also find video guides to the key jobs in the garden. I'm Tony Dickerson and you're listening to the RHS Gardening Podcast. Escape is one of the three new zones at the Hampton Court Palace Flower Show this year. It's a magnet for the grow-your-own enthusiast, a shopper's paradise for the stylish home and garden buyer and a mecca for the rose and floristry fanatic. So here's an enticing picture of some of what's happening right here at the Escape Zone. This is Mandy Armand. 
the show manager of the Hampton Court Palace Flower Show. We've called it Escape because it's really an escape to the country, considering we're only 10 miles outside of London. And here you will actually see a wonderful array of different uh, edible gardens. We've got our growing taste marquee where we have growers specialising in herbs, uh, fruit trees, fruit plants, and in combined with that we have specialist artisan food producers. So it's a real sense uh, of, of taste. And uh, in addition we have the Pig Restaurant and the School of Artisan Food doing some amazing demonstrations within the marquee itself. Further afield we have the Rose Marquee, which is a stunning display this year. It's all about uh, 50s vintage and it's been carried off uh, beautifully by the rose growers, floristry colleges and professional florists. Then you move forward, uh, we have a wonderful area this year concentrating on butterflies and bees. Our dome is spectacular, the Butterfly Dome, in association with the Eden Project. And uh, I understand it's the biggest exhibit of butterflies in the UK, where we have 3,500 tropical butterflies in an amazing tropical setting. Hi there, I'm Paul Allen from Butterfly Jungles, and we're in the dome here at Hampton Court. Um, We've got about 1,000 butterflies in here at the moment. There'll be up to about 3,000 by sort of mid to late week so it's going to be quite quite something to see and the reason behind the tropical species we have in here is to actually draw people's attention to butterflies because we're losing our pollinators worldwide actually not just a, a british thing um, and there's a huge story behind the tropical side with the farming out there because they produce butterflies for exhibitions um, whole villages get involved in the tropics and they're self-sustaining so they stop growing crops grow butterflies instead great message behind the whole thing and actually protect the rainforest where they live and work so there's a great backstory behind the tropical side here too but they've got some really unusual plants in here as well the Eden project has supplied lots of different bromeliads and a few different rare bits and pieces so there's lots of botanical interest in here going on butterflies predominantly eat um, nectar from flowers um, some of the tropical species actually digest pollen as well they're great pollinators out in south america because they carry it around on their proboscis and take it from flower to flower and pollinate as they go um, but we've also got the owl butterflies here, which are quite a good one for people to see, which are fruit feeders, and they love to feed on um, pineapples and bananas and things like that. For the native species, the best thing to do is actually find out butterflies that are local to your area and then plant in the relevant caterpillar food plants because this is something that often gets overlooked. Um, so there's all sorts of things you can do to mix into your garden. If you plant sweet rocket, um, for example, which is a great one to mix into a herbaceous border, really pretty flower, strong scent in the evening, um, you'll get green vein whites, orange tips and small whites breeding on those. Um, they eat a little bit of leaf, turn a blind eye to that, but it's not huge amounts of leaf. And sweet rocket's quite a robust plant, so it, it, it doesn't get affected by the caterpillars, but you'll get lots of those butterflies in your garden. Um, a great one to grow is stinging nettles. Whenever we do a project, we have a big pot of stinging nettles, um, which we place in a sunny place in the border. By growing them in a pot, you contain them, because they're, they're actually shallow-rooted, so they can't get out of that pot just stick the runners around the edge to keep them contained and if you let them go to seed just pull up the seedlings around them but you can actually cut them back through the year keep lots of fresh growth and that will feed red admirals commas painted ladies peacocks and small tortoiseshells that's a really important one to have in your garden hi i'm charlotte slade and i work for jane packer 
in London. We're currently exhibiting at the RHS Hampton Court Flower Show in the 1950s Rose and Floristry Tent. In here is abundance of beautiful things from the rose growers with big names such as David Austin and then all of the colleges and schools around the country are also exhibiting. We've been given a theme of 1950s and you can really see that theme throughout the whole tent from the bunting, it's even the theatre where there's demonstrations taking place looks like a 1950s railway station. With floristry, I mean... Anyone can give it a go. I'm sure everyone receives bouquets from friends or you pick up flowers at the supermarket. And the key thing is to have confidence and not be afraid. At the end of the day, as beautiful as they are, they are just flowers. Um, We run courses in the school daily. We have one-hour courses where it's just come along and have a bit of fun with flowers and just build up that confidence to get creative yourself, really. So if you're thinking of growing flowers in your garden... Um, at the moment the roses are delightful we can get scented roses peonies sweet peas delphiniums hydrangeas stocks it's endless the amount you get in summer which is really lovely got lots of choice michael marriott from david austin roses and we're here in the rose market hampton court uh, we've got um, a classic rose garden, really, and the one thing that we did this year is put in lots and lots of climbers to, to create lots of height. Um, we, had, we were able to do this this year because at Chelsea we had actually very few, so we always have a, a number of climbers ready-made on arches, and uh, so rather than uh, forcing them for Chelsea, we're able to just keep them going, gradually ticking along, and uh, use them here at Hampton Court, which is perfect. They are such a versatile plant, and... If you think about it, there's no other plant that can potentially have a beautiful individual flower, a fantastic fragrance, uh, flower for five or six months of the year and be easy to look after. There's nothing can touch it at all, so every gardener should have lots and lots of roses in their garden. If you want to grow roses for the first time and really don't know anything about it, the most imp- there's two important things to do. Uh, one is choose a good variety. Some rose varieties are absolute dogs and they get every disease going and absolutely horrible. And others are just absolutely fantastic. You know, they flower for months on end, have a fantastic fragrance and are really tough, reliable and healthy. So make sure to ch- choose those ones which are really tough, reliable and healthy. Come and ask advice, come to us, come to the other rose growers and, and ask them which the best varieties are. Um, and then the other thing is prepare the ground really well. Uh, roses love uh, humus-rich soil, so make, make sure to mix in plenty of really well-rotted organic matter into the soil before planting. Uh, maybe use some of the mycorrhizal fungi uh, in the soil at the same time as planting. And remember that roses love water. So uh, at the moment, with this hot, dry weather, water them really well and uh, the roses will, will respond very well indeed. So at the heart of the Rose Marquee is the most amazing display and it is at the launch of the Rose of the Year 2014 which is called Lady Marmalade and it's bred by Harkness Roses and introduced by Roses UK on behalf of the British Rose Trade. It's a winning combination of modern rose with vintage charm. Um, The colour is absolutely stunning and it's highly scented and uh, in addition to that it has good disease tolerance so I'd say a great rose uh, for the future.
My name's Paolo Rigo, I'm the director of Frankie Seeds and we're at the RHS Hampton Court Flower Show today. This is the Growing Taste Marquee, which is really, really food from the seed to the plate. In the Growing Taste Marquee, there's people selling food um, to take away and then there's lots of gardens, vegetable gardens, all, all themed gardens. So there might be chilli gardens, just grow your own curry. Uh, there's uh, our Roman garden as well. So there's a whole mix of, of different food gardens mixed in with, with uh, ingredients you can take home. Our garden is called Pliny's Garden and it's really based on the garden at Fishbourne Roman Palace, uh, which is the largest Roman palace north of the Alps. It's a very, very uh, special place in Sussex. Amazing mosaics, and that's what inspired us to do our garden here. And all of the planting in the garden is what you would find in Rome or what the Romans bought to the UK. So things that we, we think of as even being quintessentially English or British, you might be surprised to see in our garden here uh, things like pears, things like uh, apples, the, the Romans bought a, as well, but lots of vegetables, C- cabbage and lettuce were already present in the UK. But what the Romans did, they bought varieties from Italy which were hardier. Of course, Italy's a very cold country, it's 74% mountain, people always forget that. They think of Italy and they think of Naples, which is really unusual because it's hot in the winter. But actually most of Italy is cold in the winter and uh, it can get down to minus 40 in, in, in some parts. Well, the Romans love cabbages and they use cabbage an awful lot so in our garden we've got things like cavalonero kale from uh, tuscany and that is used modern days for uh, to make ribolita toscana which is a stew it's a national dish of florence which you make the day before ribolita actually means reboiled it sounds better in italian italian food is is peasant food really it's very simple it's local it's very wholesome and, good and filling and, and tasty, of course. And so what we've done, we've got a whole host of regional varieties. We've got chicory from Treviso, and Treviso is very cold. I ski in Treviso. And so that must have sub-zero, otherwise it won't turn red. And uh, lots of British people say to me that chicories are bitter. But until they've had sub-zero, then they are bitter. And then once they've had that cold snap, the more cold the better, then they're going to be tender, they're going to go red and become sweeter. And I think we're scared to cook chicories in Britain as well. Um, in Italy, that would just be pan-fried with, with garlic and pancetta used in risotto alla trevigiana, which is risotto with Italian sausage and uh, treviso chicory. Uh, it's very, very nice. Uh, also in the garden, we've got zucchini. Uh, the Romans certainly would have used squashes, pumpkins and courgettes in their cooking. They eat the flowers, as we still do today in, uh, in Italy. My father-in-law throws away the zucchini and he only eats the flowers. <laughs> and we're the only English-speaking country that doesn't say zucchini. We say courgette, because the Normans were here for 400 years. So a lot of our vegetables, instead of saying eggplant, we say aubergine. And so, yeah, there's, there's a big French influence on our food as well uh, in, in Britain, but certainly a lot of Italian varieties here. My name's Emily Ray. I'm here with Plants for Presents at Hampton Court. Um, we've got a Grow Your Own Curry stand here in the Growing Taste Marquee. Um, we've got loads of different unusual herbs and spices, things like kaffir lime leaves, lemongrass, ginger, turmeric, um, plants that maybe people don't realise that they can grow um, in the UK um, quite easily. They do need a bit 
bit of protection from frost, but it is quite easy to get really quite a good crop. And these plants um, have so much flavour in the leaves, um, and that's really what our display is about. So one of the things that we're handing out um, from the stall is uh, grow your own uh, curry, uh, Thai curry. So we've got a Thai curry recipe to give away, and um, they're free from the stand, and they include ingredients that we're growing um, and that we're selling from the stand. So kaffir lime leaves uh, is one, Thai basil is another, lemongrass is another, and chilies. So those four ingredients will make um, the basis for all the flavours that you get in a Thai green curry. Most of the plants that we have on the Grow Your Own Curry stand are a little bit more tender um, than the garden plants that um, that you might see. Um, they almost all really do need to be kept inside. Um, the only exception is the uh, larger lemons and larger kaffir limes in very sheltered areas of the UK can be grown outside when they're mature. All the other plants that we're selling from the stand are, are tender plants and should be brought inside in the winter. That doesn't mean a specialist greenhouse, it doesn't mean a specialist... Um, massive conservatory it just means a nice light room um, somewhere away from frost in the winter most of these plants are are um, also um, sun loving plants so they come from hotter uh, parts of the world um, than we get luckily this week we've got a bit of sunshine um, but that is something to remember when you're growing anything a bit more exotic is that sunlight more than temperature is the most important thing particularly in the winter when we've got shorter daylight hours is really making sure that you get them on a south-facing windowsill or or somewhere where um, you can get a little bit more light onto the leaves. Watering um, varies a bit between plants. Um, The trick to remember with citrus, um, for example, is that you water heavily from the top and then let them dry out in between waterings. You don't want the roots to be sitting in water. You don't want them to be waterlogged. Um, That's the same with the curry leaves and any of the plants that grow in quite well-drained soil some things like the ginger need a little bit more water they shouldn't let the soil dry out with ginger you should try and keep it as warm and moist as you can so that the roots will carry on developing my name's lee thornton i'm i work for surrey heath borough council and we're here at royal horticultural society hanson court garden show with the movable feast which is our garden entry our first entry into the show this year well we're right on the by the entrance to the growing taste marquee and we have a garden which is basically designed to be a movable feast which is the name of the garden and um, everything in it is edible and is also movable the project came about um, working with a group of army wives from deep cut barracks in surrey where our, our surrey Heath borough council is based Um, And they approached us about some ideas um, they could have because they're always getting relocated around the country. And when they move, they have to totally clear the garden. And so they wanted some ideas for things they could take with them. So from that developed a whole project, originally from a workshop. And now we have a whole range of things here, movable. We've got tub trucks, we've got army boots, we've got recycled shopping bags. We've actually got some catering-sized tins with everything planted in as well. So we've got a whole garden which is bright, vibrant and colourful, but it also is edible and practical. Um, And to me, the important thing is that it shows that anybody could garden anywhere. And if anybody comes and just goes away from this garden with one idea and goes home and does it, then I think we would have succeeded. I think the thing that's really caught people's imagination are the tub trucks. These are the the typical floppy buckets you buy for all sorts of things in the garden. There's so many people haven't actually thought of planting things in them. And they're great because they're movable. They're a good size. We've got leeks growing in them. We've got potatoes growing in them. We've got... um, raspberry plants growing them so they're fantastic for that and I think that's how you know a lot of people have said oh I've got a couple of those in the shed so I said well get them out of the shed now and, and get them planted up I think the main thing is there's all sorts of containers you can use but a really important thing is to get some drainage holes in the bottom so that obviously
obviously the roots don't get waterlogged. So just pierce some holes in the bottom of anything. Nice bit of decent soil in there, hopefully your own compost if you've got the space, and away you go. The RHS Hampton Court Palace Flower Show runs until the 14th of July. For more information on the show and its three zones, Escape, Grow and Inspire, as well as details of how to purchase tickets, visit the shows and events pages of our website, rhs.org.uk. Here you'll also find details of the RHS Flower Show at Tatton Park, which runs from July the 25th to the 28th. You can also win a pair of tickets for this year's Tatton Flower Show by visiting the podcast page of the website, rhs.org.uk forward slash podcast. But hurry, you must enter by next Thursday to win. If you can't make it to Hampton Court or Tatton this month, here are some ideas of other events you can take part in across our other RHS gardens. Top sweet pea growers from up and down the country will be exhibiting at the National Sweet Pea Show between the 13th and 14th of July at Harlow Carr. At Rosemore, there's the Poetry and Book Week between the 14th and the 19th of July. See the early stages of North Devon Knitting Impresario, Alison Murray's latest spectacular Big Books project, consisting of three nine-foot-high knitted storybooks. There will also be book readings in the gardens from local authors and book signings in the shop. At Hyde Hall between the 1st and 4th of August, combine a visit to this inspiring Essex garden with the opportunity to buy a fantastic range of plants and garden sundries from over 50 specialist nurseries and trade stands. At Wisley, between the 24th of July and the 1st of September, we have the Great Garden Adventure, sponsored by Witten Investment Trust. It's a great day out for all the family as kids go free. Details of all these events, as always, are on the website, rhs.org.uk. Every month on the RHS Gardening Podcast, my colleagues from the Horticultural Advisory Team answer your gardening questions. The RHS Advisory Service is free to RHS members, and we can be reached by phone, email, in writing, or you can come and visit us in person at the RHS shows. So let's hear what questions you've been asking this month. I'm Lee Hunt. I'm a horticultural advisor here at Wisley, specialising in urban gardening. Hi, I'm Jenny Bowden. I'm one of the horticultural advisors here at RHS Garden Wisley. And now a message which has been left from our phone lines. Hi, I'm Penny from Ormskirk. I've got a problem with my roses. The rosebuds are forming, but the flowers aren't opening properly. Instead of flowering, they just wither and die and fall off. Can you tell me what's going wrong? That, that sounds very much like a... a problem called rose balling. Uh, Many of our garden plants have been so highly bred with very large uh, dense flowers that if early in the season, especially if we have very wet weather, sometimes wet weather uh, followed by cold conditions, the outer petals are actually physically damaged and they go brown and dry and then the flower itself cannot open and it's just one of those things associated with the weather. It may vary from one year to the next but But plants like roses are particularly susceptible. And I guess there's a few others as well, Lee. Yes, something like peonies. It's those very soft petals that peonies have like roses that uh, very quickly get mushed when the the rain comes along and then get dried. And that makes that paper coating that the flowers just can't break out of. if you catch them early enough, actually that outer shell can be just carefully teased out and pulled away. And then often the flower literally springs open. So it can be a remedy where you can literally turn your damaged flowers into ones that are fully open in one fell swoop. But I guess if they just fail to open, even after those sort of remedial actions, the, the only alternative is to uh, pick them off. Of course, with roses, it's not too serious. They will produce many, many more blooms. Peonies also will have blooms from the side shoots, but perhaps not quite so many. And I have heard of uh, varieties of roses which just insist on 
always having rose ball um, type blooms. And again, like Tony was saying, there are certain situations where there's just not much you can do about it. And it tends to be a characteristic of roses, which are very, very um, intricate, doubly, doubly, double type flowers. And they just seem to have real trouble with opening. So all you can do is uh, dig the plant out and plant perhaps something else then. Not a rose, I hasten to add, uh, but um, put, a, put a different rose in a different spot. And I guess also um, roses obviously do want a nice open situation, but if you can keep them away from the drip line of trees and just surrounding shrubs and so on, good air movement and so on, that, that may help. And I've got a question here from Amanda Nelson, uh, who's from Belper in Derbyshire. I've recently started gardening. I love to cook and would love to grow my own herbs. What should I start with? Uh, can we grow mint without it taking over the garden? Well, I, I think on that, um, mint is a great plant to grow because it's actually very difficult not to grow it well. In the garden, certain, certainly it will run rampant. Uh, you often hear suggestions about planting it in an old bucket and then planting that actually in the garden. I myself would always put it into its own container, uh, Good compost, again, a John Innes loam-based, soil-based compost, and um, it will romp away in there, but at least you'll keep it contained. You'll probably have to divide it every year, uh, cutting it in the clump in two and repotting half of it and uh, giving away the other half to, to your neighbours, perhaps. Mm, what, uh, what seems to happen to it is it, it just heads straight for the edges of the container as soon as you put it, it in it, there. It's the rhizomes, the creeping stems, uh, incredibly uh, rampant and uh, it doesn't seem to need too much uh, cultivation to get it growing very well and um, as I say in the open garden it will simply run between the the roots of your existing plants and pop up all over the place and uh, as I say definitely something to avoid in, in in the garden. And there are many different varieties of mint that you can choose from aren't there Lee? There certainly are I think it's also you might need a couple of mints to get the classic flavours in your cooking that you think about so if you're doing something like a pims then apple mint or spearmint is going to be ideal but something like black peppermint is much better if you're cooking something like lamb and actually it if you added that to your pims it would make it feel like you grated some pepper into it so it's one to avoid in that another very pretty mint though is just the pineapple mint the nice variegated cream foliage slightly crinkly um, and that makes a really nice container plant Jessica Sellers has emailed from Edinburgh and she says she's recently moved into a house with a huge and ancient wisteria she says she can't make head nor tail of the pruning advice. It sounds so complicated that she's tempted to get rid of the shrub and get something easier instead. Should we bin it? Should we prune it? Is her question. And she also wants to know how to prevent it from shedding lots of leaves. Well, in the wild, of course, nothing would get pruned and would flower absolutely happily. But the the way most climbers flower in their native environment is just to scramble to the top of a tree and then send out flowers at the very very top which i suppose is really why we prune why we prune um, most of our climbers if it's really overgrown you can renovate it which means cutting it down to its main framework leaving just a framework of branches in the winter time um, but there are other less drastic approaches aren't there lee there are. Um, I'm thinking I'm going to go back a step as well, because for getting this pruning right, I think people often do feel it's really complicated. But the 
the basics of it is you have your framework, which is basically you tie in long stems horizontally to cover the space. So whether it's a fence or a wall, and that forms your framework. From that then grow side branches. And these are the very long whips that you see. In summer, what you do is these long whips, you shorten them back to about a foot, just cutting beyond a bud. That gets rid of all that excess growth. But to get the best flower buds forming at the base, you then go in again in winter in about February time and you shorten those shoots that you cut back to a foot to just a few little buds. And that's it. That's all you need to do. And that creates those little spurs at the base that are going to have lots of flowers on the bottom. So for most people, actually, I think if you can get your head around that, it's just a two-step operation where once you've done the initial pruning in summer, you can just come in the winter and carry on, almost taking your pruning as your guidance and it's done. I think the problem, though, in this case is that it, it has got big and it sounds like it's got very heavy. And as Jenny is saying with the renovation aspect, you often have to go harder and deal with some of these big branches because they become too much. And that's when you need to be brave. And in the winter time, take your pruning saw and remove some of the older, thicker stems, but leave behind some of the thinner ones that you can train in to replace it. But very important, I guess, Lee, to emphasise you do need to preserve some of that existing woody framework because it's off those that you will get these spurs, these this fresh growth. If you cut it all hard back, it would certainly grow, but you'd be getting just masses of young shoots and you'd wait many, many years to rebuild the framework. So the thing to do with a saw is carefully cut back selected branches in sections uh, so that you can be sure that you're not cutting away anything that later you wish you'd left. It seems such a shame to be frightened of this because I, I get the sense from Jessica that she's moved into this house as this ancient wisteria and she doesn't know what to do with it. She'd rather get rid of it. But potentially her whole house is going to be dripping with these blue or white flowers in May. And this is why people grow them. There really is nothing else to match it for flower power when they look really good. So if she will take on the challenge, then I think she could have a fantastic looking house. And is this leaf dropping, is that just because we've got a very big climber here and it's perhaps struggling for water? Well, they do like more water than you would imagine. Um, in their native environment, they come from, they come from forests where quite often um, by, by, by rivers. And so we tend to put them in the most un, inhospitable places and expect them to do well. So usually there's, there's in a rain shadow so basically underneath the eaves when the rain does fall it's not actually the climate isn't actually getting it so it's always a good tip if you possibly can when planting a climber plant it about um, a foot to 18 inches out from the wall and point it towards the wall and then it, it can capture a bit more rain um, so that may be one reason why it's dropping some leaves um, another one could be sudden changes in temperature big temperature fluctuations they might may lose some leaves something could be wrong with the roots um, it could be too dry or the other end of the spectrum could be too wet um, there's a multitude of possible reasons they sh shouldn't be losing leaves what do you think lee i i think you're right and i suppose they'll always use lose just a few leaves um 
with what plants do, isn't it? They they have a lot of them, and if it's very windy, for example, some might be stripped mm-hmm. off. Um, and by tidying it up and getting it back on the wall, I think that problem would be a lot less noticeable. Because particularly if you end up having a border beneath it, even if it's not very wide, a lot of those leaves are going to drop less noticeably into the back there rather than on perhaps a driveway or paving in front of it. And thanks, as always, to my colleagues from the advisory team. For more information on how you can receive free advice from the team by becoming a member of the RHS, visit the website at rhs.org.uk forward slash join. We're out of time on this edition of the RHS Gardening Podcast. We'll be back in a fortnight with special features from the RHS Flower Show Tatton Park. Until then, remember to follow us on Twitter at the underscore RHS and like us on Facebook. For now, from me, Tony Dickerson and the podcast team, goodbye. Walking down the path in my garden, and I have a suggestion for you on how you could help with global warming. With a large lawn, I found a simple way of making a big difference. I sold my ride-on mower and bought a top-of-the-range Cress robotic lawnmower. It runs off rechargeable batteries and uses cutting-edge technology to mow and maintain a lawn this size. The petrol mower has gone, and with it, the emissions. I actually don't know why I didn't sell the ride-on sooner. With the Cress robotic lawnmower, the lawn is actually looking better. The tiny grass cuttings fall into the grass roots, helping to fertilise the grass. And the family doesn't have to put up with the noise and fumes from the ride-on. And I've freed up more of my time to spend with them and in the garden. It's an easy step. And you could also be making that change today. Ask for Cress in your local garden machinery dealer. Or visit cress.com. Discover the beauty of an RHS membership all year round. Save 25% off an RHS membership today when paying by direct debit. Prices start at just £55.50. With a membership, you'll gain access to an array of special events at our gardens all year round. Be the first to know about RHS flower shows and get exclusive member-only days plus reduced rate tickets. And you'll have the chance to enhance your gardening know-how with access to free expert garden advice, monthly editions of The Garden magazine, and so much more. Terms and conditions apply.